So the teacher in Ecclesiastes has finished his report. You might be tempted to look at the sum and total of what he shared and go, what was that? What did we just hear? Because it seems like it wasn't very good news. Over and over and over again, the teacher in Ecclesiastes said that the world, life itself, is vapor. It's vanity. It's absurdity. And I think that you've seen with me that he holds God responsible for this. He says, we can't control the past. We can't control the future, but I know who does. But he doesn't say that like you and I say that with a smile. It's almost like there's an upturned fist of why. Why is the world like this? When God, when God is seen as disinterested or otherwise just disappears from the picture, it can leave you in a place where nothing makes sense. There's no reason for morals. And life is just one big cosmic happenstance where protoplasm pooled together, did some things, and die. So the playwright, Arthur Miller, who wrote The Crucible, Death of a Salesman, also wrote a play that was, let's face it, not very uh, well received by the critics. It wasn't too long after his wife, Marilyn Monroe, died that he put on the play After the Fall. Many critics saw it as much too autobiographical where the lead character, Quentin, was almost channeling Arthur Miller's own angst and internal struggles. Listen to what Quentin says in a particular passage in the play. He says, for many years, I looked at life like a case at law. It was a series of proofs. When you're, good, when you're young, you prove how brave you are or smart. Then what a good lover. Then a good father. Finally, how wise or powerful or whatever. But underlying it all, I see now, there was a presumption that one moved on an upward path towards some elevation where God knows what, I would be justified or even condemned, at least a verdict anyway. I think now that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. 
no judge in sight. And all that remained was the endless argument with oneself, this pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which is, of course, another way of saying despair. Ecclesiastes is an invitation to look honestly at life under the sun. It is a telling of the findings of one who set out with all of his wisdom and all of his resources to find the meaning of life under the sun. Now, we're going to look at, was he successful? How do we evaluate it? It's the end of the matter. What do we do? So let me invite you to turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We'll look at verses 8 through the end of the book, verses 8 through 14. Stand together if you would. Vanity of vanities, or absurdity of absurdities, says the preacher. All of it is absurdity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true. It's given to us to stay in love. Let's pray. Father, in your grace, you have providentially given us, as part of Holy Scripture, this book. It's unnerving. It's uneasy. And yet it brings us right to the place where we need to wrestle. It strips away our pretense. It strips away our facade. It lays us bare and leaves us asking the question, so now what? So meet us here. Meet us now. In the now what? For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Let me recap a couple things for you that are going to be absolutely critical in making sense of what we're going to do today. I believe that there were two speakers in the book of Ecclesiastes. The first one was a narrator. 
the one who framed the book, brought it together. We heard the narrator in chapter 1. We hear the narrator's voice again in chapter 12. Now, church tradition has said that Solomon is the author of Ecclesiastes. I think that's dubious. I don't really care if it was Solomon or not. I think that the tone ultimately of Ecclesiastes is not positive. It is ambivalent at best, perhaps sometimes pessimistic. What I think happens now in this text is the narrator tries to now frame out what the teacher has said. It's an evaluation. It's almost a grade. So one of the things that we have to do is go in and ask honest questions of the text in what it did and did not accomplish and in what it is meant to accomplish. And then listen to the, uh, the, the closing exhortation of the narrator as he closes the book. So one of the things that I want to start out uh, in doing in this very beginning is bring you in now to some of those phrases that I've used over the time in our study, that the wisdom of Ecclesiastes is not incorrect, it is simply incomplete, it is nevertheless still instructive. Or as Patrick Lafferty said, these are fit words, not final words. I want to bring you in now to where some of these ideas came from, okay? And I want you to see um, in verse 8, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all of it is vanity. The narrator's voice comes back and basically in verse 8 summarizes the book. Now, there was a, I, I will say this quite honestly, it was a very good natured, very helpful discussion that I was having with the elders this summer. As I said, I'm thinking I want to preach through Ecclesiastes. And they said, huh, really? And I said, yeah. And they said, how many weeks do you want to spend? And I said, well, um, maybe 12 or 13. And we said, you want to do more than one? Because chapter 12, verse 8 really summarizes the entire, the entire work, doesn't it? The narrator comes back and says, all of it is absurd. Well, thank you very much, narrator. What do we do with that? Verse 9 is where he goes and begins to evaluate, to try and make sense of what happened, to, to, to frame out what all has been written and explored and said and done. Look what he says. Verse 9, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. Now, this is a fairly complimentary, at least to start with, a fairly complimentary nod to all of the work that has, in fact, been done. He was wise. He'd worked very, very hard at his task. But then there's some verbs that start piling up, aren't there? 
He taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. He was a very industrious teacher. But can I, can I tell you something? Those are not necessarily um, words of uh, high praise, right? It's sort of like stating out the, the, the obvious of the bare minimum that's been done. So when I get a chance to watch TV, sometimes I'll watch cooking shows and sometimes they will be cooking competition shows. And I've noticed that they always try and do the compliment sandwich. You know the compliment sandwich, right? Say something positive, say a critique, but then try and say something positive, right? Sometimes, let's be fair, the, uh, the, the pickings are a little slim for the compliment sandwich, and so sometimes the positive thing that the judges will say about the food that's been presented is, well, you got everything on the plate, didn't you? <laughs> you kind of know that it's going to go downhill from there. And here the narrator kind of does one of those, well, he got everything on the plate, didn't he? He taught. He weighed. He studied. He arranged. It's kind of like he was given a participation trophy. Well, you tried. Let's go back to this opening phrase. When he says, besides being wise, we have to be careful not to read moral overtones into that descriptor. Tremper Longman, uh, in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, reminds us that um, it's, it's very important to not read moral overtones into this expression. While it is true that in the book of Proverbs, wisdom is bound up with righteousness and godliness, that isn't always the case in the rest of Scripture. Just because you're wise doesn't mean you're moral. Okay? Wisdom is a profession, not an attribute. So, the wise teacher certainly was a student of Proverbs, um, but I don't, I don't see many original Proverbs that were written here. There was some arranging of wisdom going on, but I don't think he was um, writing any uh, Proverbs. I think it's at best disputable that he created. So look, if verse 9 is a statement of just kind of the compliment sandwich where, well, he, he tried really hard and he got everything on the plate. Verse 10 is where he kind of begins to, to be a little bit more critical. Look at verse 10. Look at what he says. The preacher sought to find words of delight. The preacher sought to find words of delight. Okay? So, um, first of all, the, the key to unlocking how we understand this is bound up in that phrase, the teacher sought to find. If you look at the way that phrase works itself out throughout Ecclesiastes, when the, when the teacher sought to find something, did he? Was he successful? No. He ended up being disappointed, not successful in his endeavors. 
The things that he finds instead are undesirable. All right, so here. The preacher sought to find words of delight. Let me ask you this. Honestly, just a quick gut check. If you are sitting down with your cup of coffee and your journal, getting ready to spend time in the scriptures, and you are looking for comforting words, beautiful words, inspiring words, are you turning to Ecclesiastes? Why not? I've been there all fall. (laughs) They're not exactly the most inspiring pretty words, are they? I mean, there are some notable ones. The birds even made a song out of one of them. But when you look at Ecclesiastes, are these words the most beautiful, literary, poetic words that we find in the witness of Scripture? Not necessarily. Okay, well, what about the next phrase? The preacher sought to find um, words of truth. Okay, so the preacher did write true things, okay? The The teacher wrote truly about the world as it really is under the covenant curse, right? In the midst of the fall, under the sun, um, in, in, the, in the throes of the curse of Adam, the preacher wrote about these things. But here's the question for us. Are these words, though they are true, the final words on the matter? Thank God, no. Okay? So just because he wrote, he sought to write beautiful words, they weren't the most beautiful words. Just because he sought to write true words, they were true, but are they the final words? And we would say, I think, no, they're not. Certainly the narrator doesn't think so, and the rest of Scripture doesn't think so. And the reason that I'm showing you this is in part so that you see that this was not, um, that it is right to, in a sense, critique some of the words that the preacher said. Not that they're incorrect, but they are incomplete. And then in verses 11 and 12. Now, if you're not familiar with the tools of a shepherd, these can be complicated things to understand. Look at what he says in verse 11. The words of the wise, and this is where the narrator is um, talking about wisdom teachers in general. So he's going to use figurative language here. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are their collected sayings, okay? Goads are the prods that push cattle into line. Okay? Goads are the prods that push uh, cattle into line. And the nails firmly fixed. Again, tools of shepherds in general. I don't think that... um, 
So your Bible translation may have capitalized the word shepherd. There's no reason to do that, right? There, nowhere else in Ecclesiastes has there been um, a reference to God other than calling him God, right? So there's no literary evidence as to why that word should be capitalized and attributed to being an allusion to God. Um, so I don't think, and that's, a, that's, a dis, that's an editor's choice, right? That's not there in the Hebrew. That's an editor's choice to capitalize a word, okay? So why am I saying all of this? What, what point does all of this have? Okay, I think that um, there's a warning in verse 12. The warning in verse 12, my son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there's no end. And of much study, there's weariness of the flesh. Okay? Here's the warning that comes to us all. If you take the words of, of the teacher in Ecclesiastes as the settled view of Scripture, if you take Ecclesiastes as the final word of God's truth rather than pushing you to ask better questions of yourself, of the world, and of Scripture, then you've missed the point of the book. And I think that's the warning that the narrator gives to his son. Beware. Beware of putting your hope solely in teachers like Koheleth. So how do we how do we reconcile this? How do we how do we hear the message of this book if the book itself seems so incredibly questionable? And this is where I think we have to land. Um, in being prodded by these hard words, all right, in understanding that they're instructive, just incomplete, we can't answer the book by dismissing the problems that it raises in our life. Do you understand what I mean by that? Many of us, when we get faced with difficult circumstances, difficult things to think about, difficult things to wrestle with, go, I don't know what to do with that. I can't think about it. And we put it on the shelf. And I think that that's a grave mistake. I don't think that we can do that. Because when we, when we fail to wrestle with the things that Ecclesiastes brings out, when we fail to contend with the realities of a God who is sovereignly ruling over a world, orchestrating all things, and yet... Absurd things happen where the wicked prosper and God's people get the short end of the stick. When we look at how all of these things end up being empty, what do we do? We can't dismiss the book when we're confronted with absurdity, the vanity of life. The teacher has given, given us many examples, more than we can refute of how we know life is absurd. So why did God put this book in our canon of Holy Scripture? I think the answer is this. It's, it's when, we ask, when we ask life itself, what is your meaning, right? When we ask, and whenever we're having an existential crisis and we ask life itself, what is your meaning, it's... Life answers back with the same question. Well, what is your meaning? Is it your career? That's vapor. Is it pleasure? That's absurdity. Is it knowledge or wisdom? 
vanity. Is it that you're going to escape death? Not possible. In his book, Three Philosophies on Life, Peter Kreef says this, the Bible is a two-paneled picture. Ecclesiastes is the first panel, the question. The rest of the Bible is the second panel, the answer. This then is the challenge for us. Have we rightly heard, dwelt deeply in and with, and answered back to Ecclesiastes um, the hard and difficult questions that it poses to us? Well, let's hear, let's hear now how the narrator um, thus exhorts his son, right? So this is kind of the evaluation. That was the evaluation of all the things that the preacher said. Let's now turn our eyes and look now at the exhortation that the narrator gives to his son, okay? The closing, I love this. Um, this is where the, the Hebrew is fantastic. Um, in, in, in verse 13, uh, the, the, the Hebrew basically says this, enough of Kohelas. <laughs> Let's get on to the heart of the matter. And in a very short phrase, the narrator invokes three different parts of Scripture. Look at what he says. Fear God. That's the first thing. Fear God. Okay? Now, this is not the type of fear or dread that will come up from having watched a movie that was, that was too scary for you, right? It's not that type of fear. It's not a, it's not a jump scare in a, in, a, in, a, in a horror movie. Fear God is a deeply covenantal, deeply biblical concept. It is the way that, it is the way that Israel um, first entered in to relationship with God. They were brought low. Right? They were brought low as worshipers. They were brought low as God's people. They were brought low and brought in to his covenant community and to his care. When the preacher said in chapter 8, fear God, it was more like the elder brother in, in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. When the preacher said fear God, it was because God is detached and disinterested and disengaged. And doesn't really care about you or your life. So fear God is a slavish, dutiful obedience to a God who just expects it of you. And you can't do anything about it to change it. That's how the preacher says, fear God. But when the call is there for Israel, when the call is there for you and I to fear God, it's not a fear that's because God is detached and disinterested and he just expects it to be that way. It's a fear that is born out of love and care and adoration and worship. So that's the first thing that, um, that the preacher does is bring us to that part of Scripture where they are called to fear God, to remember that this is their identity as a worshiping people. The second thing that we see is that the narrator tells his son to keep God's commandments. So it's noteworthy, by the way, in all of Ecclesiastes, never once was there an appeal made for the people hearing the wisdom of the teacher to thus keep God's command. Did you notice that? Never once was there an appeal made to keep God's command. This saying, fear God and keep his commandments, ties into all of the things that we know 
not only of the practices of Israel, but her very core identity. Israel is God's people. The way that they're brought into right relationship is being brought low in worship. The way that they maintain a right relationship is to honor the covenant and their duties outlined in it. And then here's the third aspect. Fear God, obey him. Why? For this is the whole duty of man. It is the most important thing that any one of us can do. Man, woman, boy, Girl, it does not matter. It is the most important thing that we can do. And here's the last thing. It's the motive of the book. For God will bring, verse 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The narrator knows something that Koheleth could not seem to um, envision, which is there will be a coming judgment. There will be a coming um, reconciliation of all things, where all of the out-of-balance things are set right. The problem is that means that we're all on the hook. But honestly, it's the motive for most of what we do. So, like I shared in my opening quote, there's either, there's either the, the despair that there's no one on the bench, so there's ultimately not going to be a judgment rendered, or, or there's the duplicity of us thinking that we will be able to argue our way to a verdict that works out well for us because we haven't been all that horrible of a people. And dear friends, I mean, we're coming into a time of year where our, um, our cultural traditions, the way, that we, the way that we culturally practice Advent used to be framed up in songs. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows if you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. Right? So you better watch out. Now, most, free, more free, uh, most recently, um, there's an um, impish elf that runs around and causes mayhem in your homes. Like, y'all do you, right? Like, I'm not trying to be down on having some fun. But let's be sure. I mean, let's be crystal clear that the vision of the gospel that our kids have, the vision of the gospel that we have, is not tied up in fear, is not tied up in moralism, and isn't tied up in some stupid elf, whether small or large, getting us if we don't watch out. Like I said, I'm not trying to down your family tradition. You do you. But in this time of year where the gospel, the hope of God's people gets wrapped up in a cultural advent, things can get really confusing really quick. Because most of us live with that sort of hope that what we've done is good enough at the end of the day. 
And then we arrive to this season of Advent. This Advent is a time of waiting, waiting with expectation for something. And it's like I said in the beginning of the worship service, instead of a a grand play of make-believe where we insist that Jesus hasn't come yet, and then we are relieved when at last we can say, Merry Christmas, he has come. We are called instead to enter a very different type of drama. We enter into a drama of sin and decay and death and destruction. And we acknowledge that what we are waiting for um, is, is God to act and God to intervene. And that who we're waiting for is God himself. If God is not going to judge the world and bring final justice, there is no ultimate hope. If God is not coming to judge the world and restore all things, then Ecclesiastes gets the last word. All of it is absurdity. But we also know that there's justice. The judgment that's deserved is not for people out there, but it's for us. It's for you. It's for me. It's for every unclean thought and every sinful deed. It's judgment and justice for apartheid and totalitarianism and torture and famine and starvation and the gap between the rich and the poor and the plight of the mentally ill for homelessness, the traffic in drugs and pornography and child prostitution. It is the longing and the waiting for all of these sad things to not just be made untrue, but to be made right. It's a calling to prepare ourselves, yes, but all the Advent preparations in the world would not be enough if this fact were not true. God is favorably disposed to us. Do you understand that? There is no hope if God is not favorably disposed towards his people. And God is going to bring the world before the judgment seat of Christ. When we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, we're not singing a song hoping that this year the baby shows up in the manger. We're singing a song of longing for the king to return, for the final day to come. We're pleading for the return of the king. And as we look around, we see under the sun a whole lot of things that would portend to try to shepherd you and me. Can I tell you something? Your career makes a lousy shepherd. Your wisdom makes a lousy shepherd. Pleasure makes a lousy shepherd. A forever pursuing of youthful youthful luster is a lousy shepherd. These things cannot, and sometimes they outright refuse to shepherd you. But God, God steps in and says that he'll be our shepherd. He will seek out those who have been scattered. He will come and rescue us. He will come and give us rest. God will send his son, the one under whose judgment we will stand, to first come to be judged in our place. He will lay down his life for us to satisfy justice so that we can be saved and lived. Oh, beloved, it is true. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The hope that we have is that judgment was poured out on Jesus so that you and I might have the life that he deserved, but instead gave to us. Dear friends, this is the end of the matter. 
It is the question, what identity is yours? Which shepherd do you belong to? What hope do you boast in? How do you contend with the absurdity of the world and its maddening inconsistencies? There are only two answers, friends. Either you are in Christ and find refuge in him alone, or you are not. Ecclesiastes is the question, what is the meaning in your life? Friends, Jesus must be your answer that I am not my own, but belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus.